Welcome to the BMJ Roundtable at the Nuffield Trust Summit in Dorking. I'm delighted to have with me around the table, eating their breakfast, a number of people who've also been here for yesterday and will be here for today discussing the landscape of health reform within the UK and elsewhere. Let me introduce our guests. We have John Richards from Southampton Clinical Commissioning Group, Nigel Edwards, Chief Executive of the Nuffield Trust, Jennifer Dixon, Chief Executive of the Health Foundation, Terence Stevenson, President of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, Maureen Baker, Chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners, Hugh Taylor, Chair of Guys and St Thomas's Foundation Trust, Nick Hicks, who's Chief Executive of COBIC Limited, which stands for Capitated Outcome-Based Incentivized Commissioning, Jeremy Taylor of National Voices, Tim Ferris, Vice President for Population Health Management at Partners Healthcare in Massachusetts, and Nick Timmins, Senior Associate at the Nuffield Trust. So welcome everyone. I thought I'd begin by asking you to tell me what you think has changed in the year that has passed now since the Health and Social Care Act was enacted, uh, both positive and negative. So John Richards from Southampton CCG, tell me your thoughts on what has changed. What's changed? Well, uh, I mean, I think what I'd start by saying really is that um, things are going on quite nicely really in CCG world and, and I almost feel dirty saying that um, uh, in the context of um, uh, of where I had come from. So I've been a PCT chief executive, so very much part of the old um, regime that was uh, supposed to be swept away um, by a lot of this. And um, unlike a lot of my colleagues, um, I um, had no sort of hesitation really in um, determining which part of the new system I wanted to play a role in. I'm a, I'm a commissioner. Um, I think I, I sort of mentioned three things really about um, uh, what's going on in our our system um, uh, as a consequence of the the new architecture. Um, the first one really is um, getting to grips with this rather strange notion of a membership organisation um, and the fact that um, you know the board members, the elected board members of the CCG, but also the officers like uh, myself can. Uh, basically live or die um, in terms of whether we take that membership with us because they can get rid of us if they don't like what we do. Uh, that focuses the mind um, somewhat but it's also um, I think been enormously uh, liberating really in terms of um, uh, creating the environment where we have to have a dialogue about the relevance of what we're doing, uh, and I sometimes wonder whether commissioning is a is a fully utile term um, uh, any longer, um, to um, your average GP, jobbing GP, because um, if we can't if we can't engage in that way, if we can't make it relevant um, uh, and uh, reconcile these notions of uh, cost and quality and the ownership of those issues, um, then we are sort of dead in the water. Uh, I'd say a year down the line, you know, um, uh, going in the right direction, actually, um, and uh, a real sense of a broad um, clinical ownership of um, the mission of uh, Clinical Commissioning Group um, across our membership. 
by no means everywhere, but it's actually quite a disseminated model of leadership, which I think has been um, underestimated and has tremendous potential. We don't have a jobbing GP or, or an ordinary GP. We do have Maureen Baker here, though, from the Royal College of GPs. Maureen, give us your views on what has changed since the bill was enacted. I'm not always a jobbing GP, but I sometimes am, and I, I do relate to a CCG. <clears throat> My impression from the world of general practice is that um, the whole uh, furore around the bill was uh, divisive and quite bitter, and many colleagues felt that this was sort of like a thrust upon them. But um, it seems to me that in all my years in general practice, um, by and large, my colleagues try to make the best of whatever system they're operating in for the sake of patients. And I do believe that um, most, if not all, of my colleagues in England are trying to make clinical commissioning work. Um, my impression at the national level, not surprisingly, is that it's very patchy. And we do hear of some CCGs and indeed health economies where some really interesting things are starting to emerge. Um, and, and I think that's quite exciting. I do also have a lot of colleagues tell me that they're very disillusioned, particularly people who um, participated in CCGs have tried to make the system work and feel that you know, they, they just get no opportunity. Um, and and I, can, I can see that that situation would leave people feeling disempowered and disillusioned. But overall, it seems that there are some interesting things happening. It is working by and large, and, um, and, and I think colleagues are prepared to continue to engage and see where we get to with this. Nick Hicks, you've, you've um, moved from the public sector, if you like, into the, 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 the commissioning support sector um, as, a, as a private enterprise, really. Can you, can you give us your perspective on, on what has changed? We spend a lot of time going around the country talking with CCGs and actually increasingly with potential providers of care into the system. And I think things ch are changing very quickly. Um, a processy thing is, is, that, is that it's one thing, and there are lots and lots of very new and young organisations across the health service, and it's one thing to write down an organisational chart, it's another to how to turn that into a functioning organisation. So I think during the year we've seen quite a lot of organisational development from relatively immature organisations to organisations beginning to be able to make decisions and, and to take things forward. Uh, and I think it's been really exciting, actually, having GPs come into commissioning because, in a way, they come with a fresh set of ideas. They've not been, if you like, as embedded in the in the culture of the past, if you like. They Similarly, I think that the other thing is the history had been of commissioning has been relatively ineffective, been largely dominated and even patronised by, by large and powerful providers. And I think GPs have not wanted to, um, they, they, that's not what they came into commissioning to do, so they have been open to new ideas. And increasingly we see commissioners who feel that their job is, is the old system, the activity-based system that we're contracting, didn't allow them to, to fulfil their first task of, they've given an allocated sum of money and they have increasingly outcome frameworks against which to report, and just buying outpatients didn't really help them understand that process of turning money into better health. And that's where we have been able to help them think through how they might commission differently. Uh, and I've certainly seen over the last year that, that the, the 
where people start with that conversation is a lot further down the track and growing numbers having the courage to say actually this is a way forward and then the really interesting thing I think is that when people commissioners begin to talk about putting the money into the system in that way it produces a very different set of responses from providers and increasingly we are seeing and we're having hospitals saying we know our future is not as a four walls hospital we need to be more integrated system how do we move forward and actually th- those hospitals would have done well to listen to tim ferris's talk yesterday of how you switch from a something that's driven by activity into something that is essentially a population health management task and that my message of real positivity and encouragement is actually there are lots of those embryo conversations among providers going on in this country. Everybody starts thinking they're the centre, the acute, they're the big acute trusts, um, community services. Groups of GPs, I think, are beginning to think, how do we come together as providers and who do we partner with so we can respond to some of this? How do we become <coughs> GPs, part of the kernel of a... Of, of essentially an accountable care organisation. And there's interest from abroad as well, both Europe and the US, in, in, in helping that process through. So I think if commissioners continue to have the courage to pursue this forward, it's a journey of exploration and problem solving. It's not, there's not, it's not a sausage handle in which you know exactly how to do it. There are problems to solve on the way. But I think there is every sign, not every provider, because there are many that also are resistant, uh, but, but there is enough of... Um, innovation, goodwill, capability uh, and um, expertise on our provider side to be able to respond to the opportunities. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, Hugh Taylor, as, as the chair of one of these big foundation trusts, historically the flagship of, of the very early reforms, can you give us your sense of what you think has changed since the bill was enacted? Well, much less probably than, much less than you know, the public myth would have everybody believe, I think. But... Um, also more positive in some way. So from a commissioning perspective, I think uh, from, from the perspective of our local commissioners, um, I think the engagement and leadership of GPs has been a, you know, has been a great advantage. So um, you know, I think that's worked pretty well, but we were fortunate with our local commissioners, I think, um, before the change, and I think the change has gone remarkably smoothly from that perspective. So I think um, having uh, GPs in the leadership role on commissioning has gone well. Um, and certainly they play a much more vocal part in influencing our local health agenda. They're more visible with the local authority. They're more visible with the provider side. And I think all that is to the, all that is to the good. They provide excellent insights. The difference from... Uh, a provider trust like ours is that they are not our biggest commissioner so our biggest commissioner is NHS England um, so, uh, and that has felt odd for all sorts of reasons I think that's mainly transitional actually but um, they've clearly not much idea where the money is um, or in inverted commas how to commission or what they get for it, or what they get for it. Um, I guess the biggest question is um, you know, commissioning in a sense is about influenceable spend and I guess the, the problem really is if you're a commissioner at the moment is that you're managing a diminishing budget not a, an increasing one effectively and therefore uh, really influencing spend is hard I think and actually hats off to the people who notwithstanding that are trying to take a step back and uh, support change and, 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 and think about it so 
To be honest, I think if you're just talking about how does it feel inside an NHS organisation, lots of things feel the same because actually many of the same people are still on the pitch. But um, the, the clinical dimensions of leadership in the system, I think, have, have risen over the, over the last three or four years. I think that's all to the good. I think the issue for me is that um, in the end, I guess not many GPs want to go into commissioning to end up being rationers of care. Um, and if you so, so basically, if you if you're going to spend your days worrying about how to spend less um, on with with greater demand in the system, well, you know that's not that's, that's not a lot of fun, really. Yeah. So I, I guess the question is, can we maintain some of the um, sense of optimism and positivity, which I think has emerged in, at least in our local system, uh, on what looks like a pretty fraught. Uh, so, for example, I, I, I forget what the calculations you look at, but I think in um, our, if you take our two CCGs in Lambeth and Southwark, we've got to lose about three to four hundred million pounds over the next you know, three to four years. So that's their job, actually. And um, uh, that, 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 at one level, you could forgive people for just wanting to walk away from that. At the moment, I think people have stayed on the pitch. I think that's a good. That, that's a, that, that's all to the good. Thanks very our, much. Our problems lie much more, I have to say, with the centre um, uh, than with our, our local commissioners, which, was on the whole, I think felt rather good. Just say a little bit more about that. The centre, the problems with the centre. Well, it's simply that um, so forty six percent of our spend at Guys and St Thomas's is now commissioned by NHS England. Um, we can account for every penny of it, um, but uh, they don't seem very interested in that, really. So, so for example, you know, ne next year uh, for our specialised commissioning budget, um, most of which is, I'm sorry, but it is activity driven, um, on top of the 4% uh, tariff change plus... Uh, Quality, uh, quality stuff and all the rest of it. We've just been told we've got to save another six percent on quip. So, the, the, you know, so, and you think, hmm, okay, but so where's that going to come? You know, where's that going to come from? How's it going to happen? So, at the mo at, when you're talking to your local commissioners, you're talking to an intelligent group of people who understand your local health economy. I think over time, the NHS England centralised specialised budget could be could work, but at the moment, it just feels that they don't know very much about it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and an unscrupulous provider um, could run rings around them. I want to bring others in, but there's obviously a conversation we had about the, the economy, which I'll get onto in a moment. Terence Stevenson, we talked about clinical leadership and in your position as the president of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges. How do you feel that um, clinicians, physicians and other clinicians are finding the changes working or not working for them? So let me tell you about one thing I think is, is a, has changed, one thing that hasn't, and then an end-of-year report. So one thing that has changed is the creation of NHS England has provided an opportunity to take things out of Department of Health, out of civil service. I don't think we would have seen such radical reports like around urgent care or 7-7 working at the pace that we've seen them had those kind of things resided still in Department of Health. So I think that's that's been a good thing, taking, uh, and to some extent, taking the politicians 
out of out of it being led by a, a, an arm's length body, sometimes with quite a short arm, but nevertheless. Um, the second thing that has not changed, which is what everybody wants, and the the, the paralysis of planning, the reorganising of the deck chairs, and sadly dichotomized yesterday considerably into either you close hospitals or you don't, and it's not like that. What we need is for people who can be cared for at home, we need to deliver that care at home, which is what Tim Ferriss was partly talking about yesterday. If you can't be cared for at home, but you can be cared for in your local hospital, you need to be looked after by generalists. On average, you'll be over 65 with three comorbidities, so we need to get shape of training, the Greenaway report implemented across four nations, and all the profession are bought into that. And thirdly, if you can't be managed in your local hospital, if you've got something, if you need percutaneous angioplasty or you have a stroke or you need a resection of a rare cancer, you should surely go the 30 miles, a quarter of our hospitals are within 30 minutes drive of another hospital. You should surely go somewhere where they do lots of that and are very good at it. So that hasn't changed and we really need to grapple with that. End of year report, Andrew Lansley in 2010, June, said that his reforms were designed to achieve four things. One, put doctors at the centre of the NHS, well, certainly doctors are more involved in commissioning, but not so much, not as CEOs of organisations, and I'm happy to talk more about why that's happened in the US and not the UK. Number two, put patients at the centre of the NHS, certainly seeing a drive towards more open and transparent sharing of data. Um, number three, to move from processes to outcomes. Yes, we are on a journey where uh, certainly outcomes are becoming more in the public domain and less focus on processes people are really interested in on the quality prems, proms. Number four, ring fence public health. England has happened, but we still only spend 4%, 4 billion out of our 110 billion on prevention, and we need to shift more. If we're spending 8 billion of the, of the 110 on, on obesity and another 5 billion on diabetes, then we're gonna to have to shift more than 4 billion into prevention. So, plain packaging cigarettes, minimum pricing alcohol, tackle these big public health issues that the NHS is just picking up the pieces from and we're not getting at the root cause. Just briefly to pick up on the business about clinicians in yeah. chief executive positions, yeah. give us give us your thoughts on why that hasn't happened as much as it might have done. Okay, so I've, I've, Tim can say more, but I've talked to people in the United States. There are very few CEOs of uh, 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 provider trusts in the UK and, and most... Med medically trained. Medically qualified. And uh, most of the big organizations in the United States, the president would be medically qualified, although not necessarily still practicing. I've asked them what, how do they make that happen, because I think the big deterrent here is effectively you have, a, as a consultant, it's broadly a career for life, it's well-paid, consolidated pension, good terms. Why would you step out, a bit like stepping into premiership, football manage managership, when the average lifespan might be 18 months, three years, and then you're gone. And what I'm told in the US is that when you take on a role like that, you're given, say, a five-year contract, but you are guaranteed that if it doesn't work out, you can go back to being a, a cardiologist in that hospital. It's a bit like when you become the president of a college, for example. Yeah, you go back on the... You, it's underwritten. You can back... They recognise that they're trying to select someone to lead something. They may get it wrong, both sides. But you have a safety net where you can, you may not go back to your original job, that's not guaranteed because they'll have filled that job. But you will be re-employed by that organisation back at the level you were previously employed. And I think that allows people in the States to take, if you will, that risk in their career development to, to, to have a go at it. And if it doesn't work out, they can go back to being, what, after all, what they were trained for and what they're presumably quite good at. Thanks very much, Terence. Um, Tim Ferriss, we were told these reforms could be viewed from space, and they could certainly be viewed from 
the United States. What's your sense of what's been achieved or what's been uh, changed in the year that's gone? Well, it is, uh, you're looking from, a, from the, the view from across the pond, it, it is remarkable to me over the past uh, day how much the problems that are being discussed and being grappled with are so similar to the problems that, that we're grappling with. And, and I, I just, I guess, make a couple of comments. Um, and, and that's, you know, similar problems despite really extremely different structural um, and governance issues. And, and yet the, the root problems that were, what we, what we would like to produce is better patient care at a lower cost, at a lower cost trend, uh, are, are the same they're the same challenges. One of the things, you know, we're in the middle of our own little experiment, um, and uh, and one of the things that I've that I've been listening to over the past day has been uh, trying to to discern whether or not when you encounter a problem, it, whether or not that problem is a fundamental threat to the new initiative, or is it the normal uh, stresses and tensions that come up when you're trying to push large-scale change through uh, an organization. And that, that, that can create uh, quite um, uh, differences of opinion um, and can become politicized. Um, and and that's, a, that's a problem that we're sharing, uh, both, both, it sounds to me, both you and us. I think the other uh, thing that I heard was um, the fundamental importance of keeping a sense of optimism uh, among the practitioners. Boy, when I... In my job, I see that as the fundamental thing. When I'm, we're we're being asked to uh, keep cost trends down. I would say that we're not yet being asked to make quite the cuts that you're making. Our goals are are to keep uh, medical care at at growth, cost growth at inflation. I think that allows for a little more room for optimism than um, than deep cuts. But but I do um, focus most of my work as a clinician manager on developing a sense of optimism for the future and, and making sure that while we're making changes and cuts, that we are simultaneously putting in place programs where the clinicians and patients can palpably feel their care is getting better. Um, and, and balancing uh, those uh, initiatives through this process of change is fundamentally important because if, if we lose the optimism, then it's really um, uh, sort of devastating to, to the process as a whole. And give us a couple of um, examples of, of how you've done that. Well, I think um, uh, part of it's through technology. Uh, I think most of us, uh, of, uh, and certainly my children, um, would, will expect to be able to um, uh, speak with their doctor over the Internet. Uh, why, why can't we do that? In, in the United States, we don't do that, mostly because... Physicians aren't paid um, if they do that work. But in, in, in a restructured incentive system where we're an accountable care organization, we can pay our own physicians internally if we're uh, uh, to, to do that work. And it's exciting. It, the physicians think it's exciting because they're part of the future. It's a future that I think, I don't think anyone would would expect that 10 years from now, that's not going to be a regular part of care. So why don't we just figure out a way to get there? That, that's the kind of thing that produces a sense of optimism. One other thing that produces a sense of optimism is when you have uh, services, when physicians can initiate 
services that they know are the right things for the patient, but because in the past, because of bureaucratic rules, haven't been allowed. So if you can get a, a, a nurse to go to someone's house to check on a cellulitis rather than admitting them for that cellulitis, sort of hospitalization at home um, for an observation, we've never been able to do that in the United States before. And when you do that for the first time, which I did uh, just a couple weeks ago, it's very exciting. Uh, you think, you know, this is the future of healthcare. Uh, it, it's it's greater flexibility, really, is what the clinicians need to do the, the care that they know will be the right thing for the patient, rather than being boxed in by a lot of regulation. Thank you very much indeed. Jeremy Taylor from National Voices, give us your perspective on what's changed in the past year from the patient side of things. I think in one sense, probably for most patients and the wider public, there won't be in a sense that a great deal has changed. And one of the uh, startling um, uh, things about the NHS is its ability to cope with reorganisation, reform and change and huge constraints on funding. And it seems to be performing very well. During the year, though, I think a number of very interesting developments have been going on, not all of which are directly attributable to the Health and Social Care Act, in which, and indeed some of them might be seen as completely uh, aside from the Act. I think one of them has been an intensification of the discussion, both at national and at local level, about creating new models of care, uh, which are about supporting people uh, to live well, uh, to get care close to home, particularly the most vulnerable and those with chronic conditions. I'm quite excited by the, the conversations that are going on around the country, uh, often involving people who weren't talking to each other before. So I think the, the, the reforms have promoted uh, greater interchange and discussion and collaboration between uh, the NHS and local government, for example. And the Better Care Fund and the Integrated Care Pioneers uh, give us cause for hope, the serious effort to try and do the things that we know have needed to be done for a very long time. Uh, so I'm very pleased about that, and I don't think it's got anything necessarily to do with the, the, the Lansley reforms, uh, but they're happening because there's a growing realisation that we have not got the right models of care uh, for large cohorts of patients. Uh, one other big thing that's happened, I think, is the post-Francis conversation and the policy making that's come on the back of that. I think 2013 was dominated by the politics of failure, uh, particularly in Stafford, the Francis report and the, and the industry of reports that came afterwards. Uh, and that's led, amongst other things, to a very big conversation and some action around re rediscovering compassion uh, and safe, compassionate care in hospitals and the reinvention of the regulation and inspection system. Uh, so we have a new CQC doing new things uh, against new criteria. I think it's too early to say uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but it seems to me that the focus on regulation and inspection as a driver for improvement is, is equivocal and may not make a huge difference to patients. Another current, I think, that's been very clear is um, the, the lack of... the imp the the impact of the lack of reform uh, of financial incentives uh, and the overall lack of resources, which means that we're continuing to see money being sucked out of primary care, community services and social care. That's having a bad impact on, on some people. Uh, it's making it harder to deliver the very integrated care that people are, uh, are desperately trying to uh, create packages uh, around. And it means that some things, despite all the rhetoric, uh, like the importance of parity of esteem for people with mental illness, uh, that's not being borne out in reality. We're seeing cuts in services and, and uh, some people are having a harder time as a consequence of, of that. Uh, 
two other things that I'd say uh, uh, as big themes. One is the, the growing awareness of the problems of complexity of the new system. There are too many players. There is uncertain accountability. For organisations like National Voices and our members, which are patient and health charities, trying to be part of the system to work with commissioners to influence the design of services, many organisations and groups are finding it really difficult uh, to engage with and get people to engage with them, partly because of the newness of the system uh, and the multiplicity of players, and I think that, that is difficult. Um, finally, um, Andrew Lansley had a catchphrase, which was, no decision about me without me, so he wanted to liberate the NHS, whatever that means. He also wanted to liberate patient power. How far have we got in that? It, it is unclear to me. Uh, it seems to me the rhetoric has moved from no decision about me without me to putting patients first. And I think there's a world of difference between those two statements. Uh, one is the battle cry of the service user, um, albeit co-opted by a politician. Uh, but putting patients first sounds to me similar to putting patients back in their box. Uh, the return of benign paternalism. We must protect people from harm in the wake of uh, big failures like Stafford, and that's a good response. But for me, there's a slight danger that response is at the expense of, of a more focused uh, um, um, attempt to help patients and citizens become partners in decision-making. I think that's still to play for. One of the other emblematic things that's come into play in the last year is the friends and family test. You can see that as a fantastic example of the symbolic intent of the system to take the patient voice and experience seriously and do something about it. Or you could see it as a rather superficial borrowing from the retail sector, which uh, sees patients as consumers giving feedback rather than really important actors in the system. So I think there are things that are both good and bad uh, in what's happened in the last year. There are lots of things to, to give patients and their representatives hope. But I think there's a long way to go before we get a real sense that the newly reformed health and social care system wants to have patients and citizens as key actors in the system. Jeremy, thank you very much. Can I ask then um, the three people around the table who have a sort of general view rather than a a acting? Um, Nigel Edwards, as Chief Executive of Nuffield Trust, um, what's your sense of how things have changed, and maybe particularly in terms of how, how the money is going to work as we hit what people are generally saying is going to be a very tough uh, next couple of years? Yes, so I recognise everything uh, people have been saying. I was interested to hear which of those two options Jeremy thought the friends and family test was. Uh, I have a suspicion he thought it was the, the latter. What have we learned? I think the first thing we've learned um, is that uh, trying to do commissioning without being able to influence primary care very directly is going to be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So we've learned there's probably an error in uh, having the nationalisation of primary care commissioning uh, while making local secondary care commissioning um, uh, 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 try to work. So I think that will that's that's one thing we've learned. The second thing we've learned is I think as we've heard, uh, having clinical involvement in this really does make a difference. Uh, but uh, there's a big gap probably still in, in, in knowledge how to how to run complex organisations, what membership means, and particularly probably and relevant to your question about the money, uh, how do you do strategy and complex change in these uh, in, 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 with this new uh, bit of machinery? I think that's a, a second. A second thing uh, that we've learned. Uh, the third thing, uh, I, th I think there is a degree of complexity and confusion. Uh, Jeremy referred, referred to this. Uh, some of the new national bodies do not seem yet to have fully settled in, uh, into, into their role. Uh, there's a degree of 
unhelpful overlap and competition between them. And one thing we've learned is that uh, old habits die hard in terms of some of the behaviours in, in the system, particularly around uh, top-down uh, performance uh, management. In terms of dealing with the money, uh, this, this strategy gap, um, in fact, quite a lot of the activity of CCGs has been about, well, first of all, getting going. Secondly, uh, developing, uh, uh, developing themselves as organisations. Uh, there's been a bit of a tendency, I think, to, to, to focus more on sort of the transactional end of the, uh, the spectrum. There's been attempted to fill this strategic gap with a, with a list of what I sometimes think is slightly magical thinking solutions. So we've heard, you know, so reconfiguration as, as a solution to the uh, financial crisis. If we buy that reconfiguration saves you any money, and there's a debate about that, there's not very much evidence. But if that was the answer, then 2008 was the point at which we should have been doing that. Uh, that's probably true about integrated care as well. Uh, we know, one thing we know, definitely know about integration is it costs before it pays. Um, and as we've heard from, from Tim in his talk yesterday, um, it has to be developed by a process of evolution, experiment, and people getting used to new ways of working. There's the idea that you can come along with a, a model and, it, and, and roll it out, particularly nationally, uh, seems to me to, you know, to be very much contradicted by, uh, uh, by what we heard. And there's a number of these other examples uh, in the planning guidance of extremely radical but not very obviously easy to implement uh, changes, which in fact the current machinery may not, uh, unless NHS England effectively steps in and takes control of a large amount of what is being done in commissioning terms and uses its national commissioning power to effectively take quite a lot of these big decisions out of the hands of CCGs. It's not immediately obvious that the, uh, the very devolved decision-making process we've got for secondary care commissioning uh, is capable of delivering that. So I think there is a remaining, there is a sort of gap uh, between our knowledge of the scale of the financial problems, some of the national level thinking about how you might solve them, and the uh, the, the actual delivery of some of that um, on the on, on the ground, and I haven't yet seen. Uh, and be, when the plans start coming back later this year, it'll be interesting to see how far that we've uh, we've managed to to close that gap. And at the moment, I have no particular uh, feel feel for that. Thanks, Marjorie. Jennifer Dixon, chief executive of. Uh, the Health Foundation. Tell us your thoughts on what's changed and how we're going to cope with the big financial squeeze that's about to hit us. Thank you. Um, so I, I think there's, there's obviously been three shocks uh, to the system, which it's hard to disentangle. One is the Act and its implementation. The other is obviously the finance, and the other is Francis. And I think what we're seeing is all sorts of changes resulting from those three things that are intertwined. I mean, if you look at absolute macro national level, what you see is the dials look okay on the system, both in terms of quality broadly, uh, although there are lots of variations, and indeed on finance. Um, the trusts and the foundation trusts are obviously planning some kind of deficit, well, deficits, particularly on the um, NHS trust side, and, but the CCG and um, NHS England commissioning side is pl uh, planning a, a modest uh, surplus. So, so the, the finance side is looking, you know, dicey but it's at the moment it's not too bad um although we're at the beginning of this 10 year um sort of period of austerity um no doubt the health and social care act has shaken quite a lot of things up both at national and local level clinician voices people have said is definitely there but um more than ever there's a, there is this distributed leadership um uh, that we've never really seen before. We're so used to much more directed, top-down control, distributed leadership at a national level, which still is in transition and needs to bed down, trans distributed leadership at local level. 
But the overwhelming thing that I see is that there is incredibly similar views as to what should happen in, in terms of service models around the place. If you go to various conferences, you can everyone is saying exactly the same thing. I had to sit on the selection um, panel for all the pioneer integrated care pioneers, and it is amazing. They all said practically the same thing. You could almost in the interviews. So, um, so, so why isn't? What, how can we speed things up? I think. I think the main thing I would like to say is I don't think we've got the um, risk permissive balance right. We have ha- we, we're, we're still in a high managed risk. We're still in a um, how to stop amid staffs as to as opposed to how to make improvement mode. And if we are still in that sort of um, that risk mode as opposed to the permissive mode, then we're simply not going to get the speed we need. So this requires boldness, cohesiveness of leadership, and um, a really a slightly different mindset, although understanding that we are teetering on the balance given the financial issue. So I think if there's anything I'd like to say today, it would be to, to change that um, permissive risk balance from one of clobber to support uh, and and freedoms to really let's get the system um, uh, 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 singing the way it really should because of the talent. There's no shortage of talent and motivation and energy. That simply is not the issue. People talk about inertia, but I don't see that. It's about support, permissiveness, and um, uh, to, to go ahead in the way that we, we see. And actually, the direction of travel we want to travel in is very similar here than it is in the United States in some respects with respect to service models. In Germany and France, we're not alone. So how do we use the cocktail of what we've got here to, to accelerate? And I think that's the biggest question. Jennifer, thank you very much. I'm Nick Timmins, now Senior Associate at the Inkwheel Trust. Can you give us your end-of-year report after the enactment of the Health and Social Care Act? Well, having listened to what others say, I won't cover a lot of that ground, but it seems to me there are two bits that haven't worked as intended. And one is kind of around the competition bit, where I don't think there was an intention to sort of massively expand it. And and it's the paradox of you write it all down in a bill and the the competition commission wakes up and thinks, oh, you've got some duties here, which they'd always had, and sort of come in with hobnail boots all over the place. And it's clearly stopped some things happening that probably should have happened. It's made something happen that might, people might not have wanted to happen. And, you know, if you listen to Jeremy Hunt yesterday, he's clearly aware there's a problem and wants to get it back into balance, but doesn't quite know how. So I think that's been interesting. And the other, and the other bit is, um, you know, there was this great plan that you have in Nietzsche's England running the show and the politicians would stand back from day-to-day involvement, and that's clearly not happened. I think you called him arguably the most interventionist I said some state pe- ever. I said some people might describe him. Do you think he'll ever be able to step back, or he or his successors will ever be able to step back to the extent that Andrew Lansley had... had, had well, probably not to the extent he did, but you know, you, you, there, are, there have been secretaries of state who have kept out of the day-to-day management. Donald did when he was there. Um, so it's, I think it's more a matter of personality than law. The other issue that came up yesterday was around the, the role of the regulators and the extent of the NHS being kicked and bullied and pushed. Mm. Um, and, and Jeremy, you talked about that. Has that made any difference from the patient perspective? You're saying probably not. Nick, what do you sense mm. is, is, the balance of, of regulation versus the other um, yeah, well, I mean, moves well, for change? Well, yeah, part of the fallout, 
part of the response from Francis has been the answer to failed regulation is to have some more regulation, isn't it? And and you can see that sort of flowing down. It, it, I mean, Hugh's gone, but I mean, I think I suspect they feel an awful lot. They hear an awful lot from Monitor, and they um, there's a lot of regulatory pressure on the system that's sort of, in a sense, substituting for some of the old top-down management stuff. John Reynolds, your sense of that, the role of the regulator or the balance, have we got it right? I mean, actually, what I was sort of very keen to to just come in on is is this whole tension between freedom and intervention um, or or interference in the system. And, uh, I mean, I think something which is is missing from the conversation so far is that, um, to to be really frank, and maybe we're just fortunate where we are, um, but I think that more by accident than by design, um, actually, at a local level, um, we are considerably freer than we've ever been before. Um, and what I mean by that is that, frankly, uh, NHS England and the centre, we'll come on to the regulators perhaps in a, in a different part of the conversation, but NHS England and the centre are not on the pitch. Um, and the fact that they're not on the pitch... Um, has meant that um, the work that as system coordinators we have to do as CCGs in getting the system to work better together has not, so far, touch wood, um, suffered from that sort of baleful, toxic influence of the centre breathing down everyone's necks. Um, And that, I think, in the, (coughs) the best of times... Um, has created a, a realisation that the people sat round the table in the local system are the people who've got to fix it and make it work. And I think that has been wholly positive. Um, similarly, in terms of our... Um, Jeremy mentioned the um, real potential around the Better Care Fund, which I think is genuinely there. And the work with local authorities, certainly in our part of the world, has been more productive than ever before. And if I if I reflect back into previous lives there. I think the centre um, uh, didn't help that uh, in the past. I can remember many conversations with strategic health authority colleagues which were um, uh, really sort of uh, could be paraphrased as why are you spending all of your time talking to the local authority? It's got nothing to do with the NHS. Uh, And that, as I say, because they're not on the pitch, um, that baleful influence has, has receded somewhat. Um, and, and that is wholly good, I think, in terms of local leadership, um, getting um, the people who need to, to pull together to, to make things work better. Uh, and I feel extremely optimistic about that. The other bit, though, which, which Hugh alluded to, uh, I think, uh, briefly here, and which we need to see a big problem coming, is around specialised commissioning. Um, because when I was talking about the... Um, the potential role of NHS England in terms of big picture strategic planning and commissioning. Um, and I have to be um, very careful how I choose my words here, but I mean, frankly, you know, all of the competence around those areas walked out the door two years ago. Um, there is not the capability or the capacity in NHS England to undertake those roles. Um, in terms of specialised commissioning, um, from what we hear about the um, 
uh, operating plans that are being put together around opera, uh, specialised commissioning, you have a major financial crisis looming. Just look at what the first cut plans say when they've been submitted. There are uh, specialised commissioning organisations that are submitting deficit plans um, of substantial proportions uh, all around the country. There's a bit, the money's in the wrong places. Nobody knows where the right places are. Um, and the instability that that um, uh, generates um, and the knock-on effect onto local uh, systems is um, uh, something we need to be very concerned about. Thank you very much, John. Jennifer. I just wanted to add on a point um, that uh, we're talking about our experience and uh, what we see as being the impact of the Health and Social Care Act, but just to say that the department have actually set aside £7.5 million to have an independent evaluation of the main elements of the Health and Social Care Act that will be funded over the next uh, three to five years, um, which we're involved in coordinating. So uh, hopefully yourselves and indeed BMJ readers can have uh, the benefit of that as we produce the papers in future. Thank you very much. I think we could say that the end of end of year report has a, a rather mixed picture. Uh, a lot of optimism around this table. Some listeners may find that uh, um, un unexpected, um, but obviously we very much hope that the next year we'll see further developments and we'll be here to report them. Thank you very much indeed for being here and for listening. <laughs>